And I had this image of myself sitting in a prison cell, having lost everything, right? My job, my ordination, my reputation, my family, just sitting alone in a prison cell. And then it was like I heard God say, yeah, you might lose everything, but you will never lose my love for you. And it was like in that moment, God's love became more real and more clear than it had ever been before. And now for the next episode of Letters from Home, sending encouragement to your doorstep by capturing the heartbeat of God's people one story at a time. Hi, this is Meg Leesner, your host. Have you ever been falsely accused of something, of something really big? and have people share about it around the church, the whole church, only to find out that what they thought was wrong, but then you lose your job anyway, and the FBI gets involved? That's what today's story is about. Today's guest takes us through a very dark time in his life, but it doesn't stay there. You will see the spiritual man and leader that our guest is today and how all of that did a deep and lasting work in his life that you will want to hear. Here is the everyday extraordinary faith story of Marcus Watson. Marcus, I am so excited to have you on the podcast today. I heard your story on Tracy Wenchel's podcast, Reboots, and it so impacted me. And then I then I got to know you in our, our Marco Polo podcasting yeah. uh-huh. group. And <laughs> I am excited. I think I think our listeners are gonna love your story today. Uh, You've been through yeah. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> for sure. Well, we are just gonna get right into your story. Okay. So bring us into your home growing up, Marcus. What was it like to be you in your childhood? So I uh, grew up in a Christian family. My dad is a pastor. He's retired now. Uh, really was serving up until just uh, up until the pandemic. <laughs> he was a, a, an interim pastor at a church in, in Pennsylvania, and he was out here in California. And then they said, oh, well, you're stuck over there, so we'll just kind of end it, our <laughs> your employment at this time, which was totally fine. Uh, grew up knowing all about Jesus. Uh, you know, all the stories. Uh, in fourth grade, I went to a Christian elementary school and was, you know, everybody wanted me on their Bible quiz team because I knew all the answers. <laughs> and I felt really good about myself. <laughs> all eight of our kids have done Bible uh, quizzing. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and my uh, great family, uh, I never felt pressured to be you know, the good pastor's kid, not that they wanted me to be a bad. And so anyway, so I never felt like I had anything to rebel against. I was a, a compliant kid um, and uh, somewhat even judgmental <laughs> in in uh, junior high and high school about all those kids who weren't as Christian as I was. And Don't you think pride is one of those insidious killers in the church? It's yep. just there and it sits there and people don't see it and we don't yeah. preach as much on it, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I grew out of it a little bit in college out of that that pride, but but it's still I still had I still had a lot for a long time. And I you know, I still do, but I'll tell you my story, but it broke me of a lot of the pride that I once held on to and it's an ongoing breaking. <laughs> you know, it hurts to let go of your pride. But uh, yeah, for sure. So I know, you know, my kids are all raised in a, a Christian home, but mm-hmm. at some point your faith either, you know, becomes yours or it mm-hmm. just kind of, you kind of drift away a bit. What was your journey like? My, when I was four years old, three or four years old, my mom tells me that, you know, I, I prayed, uh, she was putting me to bed and we had our bedtime devotions. And she said, I pray, Jesus, I really, 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 really want to be your child. You know, <laughs> so that was step one. <laughs> when I was about 12, we went to a Billy Graham crusade and that was cool. And I went forward at that Billy Graham crusade because I, 
I don't know, in my mind, I thought, oh, I want to do this at an age when I can remember it. You know, I, I, I already believed in Jesus. I already, be, you know, I would say I was already a follower of Jesus as a, you know, as a 12-year-old can be. But then when it really became my own was in college and I got involved in Campus Crusade for Christ. You know, that's where I learned to lead a Bible study and disciple other guys and share my faith. What college? You'll never, you've never heard of it. Slippery Rock University. <laughs> Oh my, Marcus! That's <laughs> it's real. That's wow, it's real. <laughs> it's in uh, Pennsylvania, about forty-five minutes north of Pittsburgh. Man, uh, college was great. You know, great friends. Grew in my faith tremendously. Yeah, what happened after college? My dream had always been to make it big in Hollywood. I wanted to be, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a movie star. <laughs> and then wow. when I was, uh, in fact, when I was a kid, I would pray, dear Lord, please help me to become an actor while I'm still a kid. I wanted to be a child star. <laughs> I didn't want to wait, uh, even though we lived uh, in Pennsylvania, not Hollywood. <laughs> but This explains so much, Marcus. <laughs> does it? <laughs> and then, And then in high school, I was like, no, I want to be a director, actually. And so so in college, I uh, majored in communication, um, video production, and then got an internship in Hollywood and uh, got to work on some really cool projects, got to work on the 1994 Clio Awards, which is like the Oscars for commercials. That was cool. Kelsey Grammer nice. was the host, you know, and other celebrity, you know, presenters. And uh, that was a lot of fun. And I got to work on a Muppets music video. That was cool. Um met a bunch of celebrities that, I mean, shook hands with a bunch of celebrities because, you know, Muppets always do stuff with celebrities. Helen Hunt remembered my name. <laughs> she she's did. Like, yeah. She's like, Marcus, right? You know, like later in the day, I'm like, yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so that was great. And uh, I did, so I did that internship, finished college, went back to uh, LA. My dad had uh, taken a position in in Los Angeles as a pastor. And so the whole family moved out there. So that was great. My, you know, I was like, all right, Lord, I'm on my way. You know, this is, this is what, this is what you made me for. And I'm going to do it now, you know? And so worked on some other, uh, you know, TV shows. Mostly I kind of got pigeonholed into TV specials. <laughs> so very short term. Um, uh, and then, but over the, over the course of that, I, I started developing this sort of love hate um, relationship with Hollywood and um, I, I had this moment where um, I was supposed to deliver a script to the host of this show. And, um, uh, you know, it was kind of early email, so they weren't really email th quite quite yet emailing the scripts and stuff. I had to hand deliver it. So anyway, del del delivered it to the wrong address, put it through a mail slot or something, and, and it was the wrong place. And uh, got back to the production office, and the producer's like, you delivered it to the wrong place. He hasn't gotten it. I was like, well, I delivered it. And then he's, you know, figured out what happened. He's like, you can't make mistakes like this. He's like, he's a star. And this guy was like, uh, he's a supporting actor on NYPD blue at the time. So anyway, um, he's, and then he goes, well, he's not a star, but he is a celebrity. And uh, <laughs> I'm like, Oh, so there's a difference. Okay. And it, it just kind of clarified for me, this sort of hierarchy in Hollywood. Mm. And I was definitely at the bottom of that hierarchy. And uh, that was sort of the the first time I was like, oof, I don't know if I really like this. And then the last thing for me was um, I was working at a, a company called Creative Domain, which uh, cre uh, produced uh, movie trailers. And it was cool. I, I, it was a temp job uh, for two weeks uh, with sort of the possibility of going full time. And after those two weeks, they decided not to keep me. And I said, oh, well, why not? You know, is there something I could have done? They said, well, you could have offered to stay late, uh, you know, meaning mm -hmm. stay late for no no pay, no overtime or anything. And I was like, uh, okay, I see how it is. <laughs> so uh, at that point, I was just like, I think I'm done, you know. And there had been other little things along the way that just sort of left a sour taste in my mouth. Um, had so, you done any acting roles or anything? I, I didn't do any acting. I wasn't interested in acting anymore at that point. Um, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. So I just I wanted to I wanted to do video editing. I loved editing, um, and and then eventually directing. That was kind of my my plan. So anyway, so I, I, I left Hollywood and, uh, I was like, well, I don't know what to do. Uh, but let's see, I could either 
go on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. I thought that that would be a great fit. Or I'll get a master's degree in communication at some Christian university, perhaps, or I'll go to seminary. And Campus Crusade or master's degree in communication, this was the summer of 96. I could I could get into those by the following January, or I could start at Fuller Seminary in September. And I was like, well, I, I don't know what else to do with my time. I'll, I'll just start seminary, and if I don't like it, then I'll quit. So I started at Fuller Seminary, and I loved it. It mm. was like my first class was a class called Patristic Theology, which means Theology of the Early Church Fathers, right? Eight o'clock, Monday morning, and we opened with prayer. And coming from a state university, I was like, whoa, what are we doing? Oh, right, we're in seminary. <laughs> right, you can pray at the beginning of class. And then, and then the professor, John Thompson, he started lecturing, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. I can't believe I get to learn this stuff, you know? And uh, so that first week I was like, this is, this is where I need to be. This is the right place for me. How were your parents feeling about that? And were they kind of glad that you were out of the Hollywood scene? They were fine with me not doing Hollywood anymore. (laughs) They were okay (laughs) with that. They didn't that now, uh, they never pressured me into going to seminary or going into the pastorate or anything. In fact, they would say, don't become a pastor, Marcus. It's too hard. But they didn't, of course, keep me from it either once I started to feel that calling. Were you uh, having really good conversations with your dad? Was he, you know, like your patristic theology in different classes? Did did it open up a new avenue of conversation oh, with your dad? Yeah, yeah, it definitely. Even now, you know, there are things that we can talk about in terms of, you know, challenges of being a pastor um, uh, that I couldn't have talked about before, you know. So, yeah, totally. It, you know, it's a, it's a definitely a point of connection here that we have, and that's cool. Yeah. And even for my mom, right, who's a pastor's wife, and she gets a lot of that too. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, but the, you know, I had another another uh, kind of confirmation that I was in the right place. Prior to leaving Hollywood, I had shelled out my own eight hundred bucks for a three day course on video editing on what was then the new state of the art, you know, a computer editing system called an Avid, and. Uh, you know, so I took the class. I thought that's going to be my next step. I'll, I'll try to get a job as an assistant editor somewhere, you know, and start doing that. And then I left Hollywood and then I was like, well, that was a waste of money, I guess. Um, and so then uh, started at Fuller and, uh, you know, first week I'm looking for a job uh, on campus. I see the posting. I'm like, oh, there's a, you know, a position in their media center. I'll, I'll apply for that. You know, that fits. Um, so I go and I, I get an interview and I sit down with the director of the media center and he's in kind of a large cubicle. Uh, and on the other corner of the cubicle is an avid editing system. And I'm like, Hey, you have an avid. He goes, yeah, we just got it. He goes, do you know how to use it? I was like, yeah, I took a class. <laughs> and so I became, well, yes, <laughs> I became the, uh, uh, at first, just sort of the the uh, on-call video editor whenever there was something to do, and then eventually became the video production coordinator for Fuller Seminary, which was fantastic. And so I was like, all right, I get to study theology, I get to grow in my faith, and I get to do video production. <laughs> awesome. Without all the pressure and fakeness of Hollywood. <laughs> so, Yay! Yeah. So anyway, it was definitely... God saying, "This you are in the right place. This is where I want you right now. Yeah. I started the ordination process, still wasn't convinced that I would become a pastor. It's a two-year process if you, you know, do it in the shortest amount of time. And, and a lot of folks do. I, I did it in four years because I was dragging my feet <laughs> and I did not want to. I really just had a hard time thinking of myself as a pastor. Uh, again, I have a great relationship with my dad, but that was his thing, right? That wasn't my thing. And I, and I was still, I think, in a lot of ways holding on to that Hollywood dream. I, even though I had let go of it, you know, pretty much entirely, there was still a part of me that was like, I can't see myself doing something else. And so my wife, so I got married uh, kind of the last couple of years that I was at, at, at seminary. And um, my wife, during our first year of marriage, she kind of said to me while we were in bed at night, one, she's like, so are you ever going to finish this or what? <laughs> you know? and I'm like, yeah, I know, I know, I need to. Okay. Not long after that, uh, we were at a Good Friday service at the church where I was a youth pastor. We ended the service with a prayer by St. Augustine that started with the words, late have I loved you. Like those words just sort of hit me. I was like, oh, Yep late have I loved you. Lord, I have been very late in loving you. I've been dragging my feet. And so I said, okay, Lord, I I know you want me to finish this ordination 
process, I'll finish it. You know, I'm all in. And so that summer I did. By the next spring, I was a, an associate pastor in a church in Union, Kentucky, uh, just about 20 minutes south of Cincinnati. And uh, was there for about three and a half years. And then from there came to San Diego. And here I am. There you are. Yeah. You'll get a kick out of this, but we we thought uh, we were available to be sent to plant a church wherever. Hmm. And we were in Southern California and we said wherever. And we thought we were going to be planting a church in Riverside, which is called hmm. the armpit of LA. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and the, the Lord sent us up here to Seattle instead. Huh. So, wow. You know, sometimes you're willing for whatever and you just don't know where he's going to yep. put you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> and you to San Diego. Yes. Yeah. And that, that was a, that was when we realized we were going to go to San Diego. You know, I'd have interviewed a few other places, including Texas. And I was like, yeah, Texas would be fine. But when it became clear that this is where we were being called, well, we were so happy. <laughs> you know, San Diego, you can't beat that plus back close to friends and family. And uh, and it was just, and we love living here. We do. It's, it's a beautiful place. Well, I know it hasn't always been smooth for you, Marcus. Yeah, so came to this church in uh, San Diego. It was a great experience for about seven and a half years. And then that last year was awful. <laughs> it was just horrible. 2015, I went on sabbatical. About two weeks into my sabbatical, I got a call from our executive presbyter, who is sort of the guy uh, overseeing the presbytery here in San Diego, our, our group of churches. And he said he needed to meet with me. And I said, well, you know, I'm that's fine. Uh, I'm going to be out of town this weekend. He wanted to meet with me that Saturday. He was calling me on a Friday. I was like, no, I'm, you know, I'm going to be visiting some friends up in LA and, and my brother. And, you know, uh, so I won't be here. He's like, oh, uh, and it really kind of pushed to try to meet with me that day. He's like, can you reschedule your, your trip? I'm like, no, I'm on sabbatical. And, uh, I'm looking forward to being with my friends. We can meet next week sometime. <laughs> so anyway, but it kind of was like, well, why, why is he why is he so anxious to meet with me? Anyway, so we did end up meeting on that Sunday. Uh, he came and basically said, uh, well, Marcus, uh, someone has accused you of having a problem with pornography. And I said, oh, okay. And we talked a little bit about this. And, and then I said, well, what do you need to do? And he said, we need to do a forensic analysis on your laptop, which was owned by the church. So that's why he could claim that, I guess. Um, I said, well, okay, that's fine. Do you want it now? Uh, you know, my laptop, he said, that would be good. So I gave him my laptop and he left and they did this forensic analysis. Now, full disclosure, uh, have I ever looked at pornography in my life? Yes. But I, I want to make sure I don't. And so for years now, I've had accountability software and all my devices. I have an accountability partner, another pastor in the presbytery who plays a big part in, in what happened in this story. I know our, our pastors use covenant eyes and they're all accountable to each other. And my son also has led a, a purity group mm, yeah. I think, for four years in San yeah. Diego with young men hmm. just to say, let's, let's keep this a conversation and let's, yeah. let's keep purity part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's important. I use Covenant Eyes too. Um, and it's great, you know? So anyway, so he took, took the laptop and he said it would take about two or three days, turned into about three weeks, which was very frustrating uh, because, you know, just... He had my laptop. I wanted my laptop back, you know. <laughs> what all does that mean, a forensic analysis? Yeah, yeah. That sounds really fancy. Right, I know. I, I had to ask that, too. Basically, it just means that they hired someone who basically went through my entire computer to try to find if there was any pornography there. After about three weeks, I got a call from our executive presbyter, and he said, well, I can't give your laptop back because your laptop has been handed over to the authorities, and it's now a potential criminal investigation. And I was like, what? what are you talking, you know, I was like, what are you talking about? And I could not fathom how that could even be possible. I'm like, what in the world did they find? Now, because the accusation was pornography, you know, of course I'm thinking, I know I've never looked at child pornography, you know, and, uh, but I'm, I'm wondering, right. Because that's the kind of thing that would trigger a criminal investigation. At the same time, I'm wondering, did somebody put bomb instructions or something you know, on my laptop or terrorist stuff. Right. I don't know. Um, I did know that the, um, the tech guy at our church who, you know, would fix my laptop now and then was, had also become a little bit of a nemesis for me in recent months or in the past year or so. And so a part of me was like, did he put something on there? You know, and uh, he, he didn't thankfully, but anyway, that, just turned into a really, really dark time for me. The rest of my sabbatical, I'm about 
five or six weeks into my sabbatical at this time, and just the rest of my sabbatical was just really, really, really dark. Was it shared with the church at this time, or is this just something that's quietly being talked about with you and you and your wife are like crushed thinking about what we have, this isn't, we haven't done anything. Yes. Uh, so it was not shared with the church. And the, the part of the problem with this is that they weren't following the process, right? There, th- our, mm. our book of order, right, has a process for if someone makes an accusation, here's what you do. And you form an investigative committee and then, it, you know, they do an investigation, all this. But all this was being done sort of secretly under the table. Don't tell anyone. And maybe he was trying to protect me but it was a really bad decision, right? The process actually, I realize now, is designed to protect everybody, <laughs> the the accuser and the accused. Right. <laughs> so I, I was, I felt incredibly unprotected in this process. I didn't know where my, you know, who had my laptop. He wouldn't tell me. Didn't find out until, you know, a month and a half later that it was the FBI that had my laptop. Now, my friend Kevin, who is uh, a pastor here in the Presbytery and and my accountability partner, he really went to bat for me uh, during this time. He and another pastor actually uh, met with the executive presbyter on my behalf and said, hey, you know, you're doing this wrong. Start over, you know, just go through the process. And he's like, no, no, my advisors have told me I'm doing the right or the right thing. But um so I was really grateful for for everything that he did. He would, you know, take me out to dinner, get some drinks now and then, right, and uh, check in on me every now and then. How are you doing today? One of the things, right, there were some really good things that came out of this that were very painful at the time. One of those good things was that I realized uh, my my own insecurity in terms of my uh, sense of worthiness, uh, uh, feeling like I deserved to be loved, uh, was exposed to me. I was leaving from hanging out with my friend Kevin, you know, one night and, <clears throat> and I just sort of said, Lord, why is he doing this for me? He doesn't have to do this. He doesn't have to make phone calls on my behalf or send emails or have meetings on my behalf or check in on me or take me out, you know? And, uh, and then, and of course I was like, well, of course, because, you know, we're friends, but, but I was like, but I don't feel like I deserve this. And so the next day I was, I was at the beach and uh, I, I like to surf, though I'm not very good at it. <laughs> um, but I was sitting on my surfboard, not catching any waves. And, uh, <laughs> but I was, I was praying, Lord. That's a good title to a movie. Okay, no, sorry. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I was just like, Lord, it became clear to me that I had this sense that I didn't deserve to be loved. In fact, I realized that whenever I would pray, like confess a sin or something, I would say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I don't deserve, I don't deserve your love. And it just became clear to me, oh my gosh, I've been telling myself for, you know, since I was a teenager, I don't deserve your love. Lord, I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve your love. What a terrible message to be telling myself over and over and over again. And so then I I was like, Lord, I got to change that. And so I just kept repeating to myself, Lord, I deserve your love. I deserve your love. Not in the sense that I've earned it, but in the sense that I'm worthy of it because I'm a child of God created in the image of God. Right. And then as I was just sort of reciting that in my mind over and over again, uh, I realized also that I have this sense that I don't, I feel like I don't deserve to be loved by other people. And and so then I just said, Lord, I deserve to be loved in general by people, right? I deserve to be loved. I deserve to be loved. And so, right, it took a really, really painful experience to at least make that clear to me. Okay, I am worthy of love. And then another a little moment of light uh, for me, moment of grace was when we met with an attorney friend of mine, uh, well, my friend Kevin and his wife said, you should go talk to an attorney because you don't have any protection because they're not following the process and you have no idea what's going on. So I did meet with an, an attorney and I didn't know until we met with her that she had experience with child pornography cases. And so I told her, look, I've never looked at child pornography and, um, you know, we don't know what it is uh, that they that they found. And so she was, we were talking and she was painting all kinds of worst case scenarios for me and my wife. And She's like, well, you know, if, if they find something, they, they probably aren't going to come quietly. They're going to come banging on your door at, you know, four or five in the morning and get you out of oh bed my. and all that. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh my gosh, holy cow. After about an hour, she finally said, well, I can tell you're not guilty. And I, I was like, oh, great. How can you tell? She said, you're not asking the right questions. If you were guilty, you, you'd be asking about uh, how much time am I looking at? You know, uh, uh, how, how what's our defense going to be? And, uh, and she said, and you're just asking, when can I get my laptop back? <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, thank you, thank you. And it was like, gosh, somebody understands. Somebody can see the truth here, right? 
Uh, and so she she was wonderful. She never charged me for anything. She said, oh. uh, she said, you know, I'll send some emails. I'll make some phone calls. Uh, you know, don't worry about paying me until it gets more serious, you know? And so that was fantastic. I was really grateful for That's her. That's so encouraging. Yeah. Had you said anything to your, anybody else at this point, like family or your kids or no. and your kids are young. So they, yeah. they probably still probably don't know. Fact, I still haven't said anything, yeah. but, but my oldest is 15 now. So I'll probably tell them pretty soon about what all yeah. this thing happened. They, you know, well, yeah. So they, they had no, no clue about anything. And then the, the, really the most meaningful moment during all this was near the probably about two weeks before my sabbatical ended. I was praying, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in the Psalms, Psalms of lament, <laughs> um, lots of prayer and silence and solitude. Uh, my wife was working, you know, the kids were, well, during, I don't know what the kids were doing during during the summer. I guess they were home. I was praying this one morning and I had finished, you know, just sort of reflecting on one of the Psalms and was sitting quietly. And I started thinking about, you know, all the worst things that could happen. And it was like my mind went in this spiral, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I could, uh, I could lose my job. And, and I did eventually, um, I was like, I could lose my ordination, right? Uh, if it looks like I'm guilty of something here, um, I could, I could lose my reputation, right? People could, I could be remembered as that guy. Oh, remember Marcus? Yeah. You don't want to want to go down that path, you know? Um, <clears throat> uh, I could, I could lose my family. I thought, um, now, in that worse, in that moment, I don't think I actually would have lost my family, but you know, your mind goes to these dark places. And, and then, uh, I thought, oh my gosh, I could, I could become a registered sex offender and everywhere I go, people will think something about me that isn't even true. Um, and then I thought I could go to prison and I had this image of myself sitting in a prison cell, having lost everything, right? My job, my ordination, my reputation, my family, just sitting alone in a prison cell. And then it was like, I heard God say, yeah, you might lose everything, but you will never lose my love for you. And it was like in that moment, God's love became more real and more clear than it had ever been before. And, you know, of course I believed in God's unconditional love before that. And I taught it and I preached it and I told my kids about it and I, uh, God loves you unconditionally. Yes, God loves you unconditionally. But it's like, I didn't really understand it until that moment. And I'm grateful. I didn't actually have to lose all that stuff. I did lose one of those things, my job. I'll tell about, I can tell you that in a sec, but all the emotion of having lost everything. And yet in that moment, God said, the one thing no one can ever take away from you is my love. So that was really uh, a powerful transformative moment for me. And life-changing and life-altering. Doesn't it make you look at the scriptures in a whole different way? You wonder where all those Psalms are, where it says your, mm. you know, your bones are cleaving to your sides and you're, yeah. you know, and you're going about the day and you're moaning and, yeah. and then Job and, and something yeah. like that. And then you, it opens up the scriptures, a whole new set oh, of scriptures yeah. to you as well. Yeah. It's like, yeah, totally. All of a sudden I understand, oh, now I understand what David was feeling or whichever psalmist was or Job. Oh, I mean, maybe not I exactly. Just but being dramatic. I yeah, right. <laughs> he actually was like terrified. He was actually like crying out in agony. You know, I, I get it now. And you know what? This whole experience really made me more compassionate too, I think, because mm -hmm. now I get it when someone is suffering. Not that I hadn't suffered in the past, but this was the deepest for me, the deepest kind of suffering I'd experienced so far. It was almost like an inconvenience to me uh, mm. if someone was in the hospital. That sounds awful, but uh, I'm just being honest, I guess, <laughs> right? It's like, oh gosh, got to go visit somebody in the hospital, you know, but um, now I, it's different. Like I, I want people to know that somebody cares, you know, it's certainly not an imposition the way it felt like when I was younger, or maybe it was just the Thursday before I went back to work. I went back the following Monday, I got a text from our executive presbyter. He said, uh, I have your laptop. You can come pick it up anytime. So in other words it had wound down. And in fact, he had told me in a, uh, earlier, he said, they, they've told me they haven't found anything. And I was like, of course not. I didn't say that, but I thought to myself, of course they haven't. <laughs> right. So kind of, but kind of dry like that and not yeah. like Marcus, I'm so happy. Right. You know, it was kind of like some judge yeah. was reading something that you didn't know was reading you some. Hey. Yep. 
It was very dry. And and my response was very dry. I was actually meeting up with him to get some some of my work documents so that I could get back to work when I when I start up again. And that's when he told me he's like, Hey, I just want to let you know they've told me they haven't found anything. I was like, Okay, good, thanks. Like I, I also didn't respond by going, Woohoo, yay, oh, I'm so happy. It's like I was just like, Of course, of course they didn't. <laughs> anyway, so he he texted me, he said I could get my laptop. I let my friend Kevin know and he's like, Hey, why don't you ask your lawyer if you should you know, ask him anything or if there's anything you need to do as when you pick it up. And she was like, you guys should not be interacting with each other. As far as we know, they're still an open investigation. We, we have not yet reserved, received confirmation. She, by the way, is the one who figured out that it was the FBI that had my laptop. She had hmm. to really push and prod to get that information, I guess. So then she said, tell him he can drop it off at my office. You can get it from me. He did not do that. And so I did, still didn't have my laptop for about another three weeks. And he actually left the presbytery and went and took another position at about that time, about the time that I, I got off my sabbatical. I, I did eventually get my laptop back. I was like, okay, good. I think we're done. I think it's over. You wanted to spray it with bleach, you know? Tough. Yeah, right. <laughs> Anyway, about a week after that, I got a, a a letter from the Presbytery office handed to me like I was being served. And uh, I opened it up and it said that now formal allegations were being brought against me, pornography, and this time including child pornography. And so then, and I was just like, oh my gosh. What? Lord. Yeah. I was like, Lord, I thought we were done. I thought this was over. Like, what is going on? And just like this awful, horrible, you know, feeling on the inside and... And, and like, when is this ever going to end? And then interestingly, by that night, I was feeling better <laughs> because I thought, well, you know what, Lord, you got me through it once, you'll get me through it again. I had to go stand, uh, go sit before a panel of, of three folks from the presbytery to determine whether or not I needed to be put on administrative leave. Was this a new process? So it was a new process. It was the same person making the a accusation, the allegations. I because see. the first one was not an official investigation, she had the option to now form uh, file formal allegations and kick off an actual, uh, a formal investigation. So anyway, so they decided not to put me on leave. And this was a moment of grace um, when they kind of gave me their determination. It, it kind of spelled out that the fact that she had no evidence of any wrongdoing of any kind. It was all just guess, you know, what, what, what do you call it? It's not even hearsay. She was just guessing. <laughs> and and the, basically this person, it was a staff person at our church. I found out later. I didn't know who it was at the time. Um, she said that since, uh, you know, it went to uh, the FBI, then there must be something, even though uh, the FBI, FBI decided not to pursue an indictment, Right. Thankfully, these this panel from the presbytery realized, yeah, there is no there there, you know, and so we're not going to put you on leave. We do have to do the investigation. About three months later, um, uh, the investigation concluded, and they determined that there was no uh, evidence to support the allegations, and so that wrapped it up as far as the presbytery was concerned. And so that was a huge, huge blessing. How did you feel at the time? Because you're still involved at the church and. I know as a pastor, you care about people. You see all the people in the hallways and you're interacting and preparing. I mean, how did that affect you? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because so my dad, my dad's a pastor and he went through some hard times. And I would wonder the same thing, like how how's he still preaching, you know? And what was interesting was that I was like fired up because of it. I was like, I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to, you know, and, and it, it was... Uh, most of it was about, like, I read this book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro, which is fantastic. Did a sermon series on that, did a sermon series on, um, you know, well, uh, not a sermon series, but some of the books that I read, Surrender to Love, Life of the Beloved. Uh, I, I read a lot of books, uh, Abba's Child by Brennan, Brennan Manning, a lot of spiritually formative books during my sabbatical, which I had already planned to do. And Praise the Lord, they were exactly what I needed <laughs> for, for that time. Hmm. And so a lot of stuff just about deep spiritual formation. And uh, um, so that's what I was preaching on, and I was passionate about it. And um, I think in some ways that's what helped me stay focused <laughs> was that I was just like, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say what you're telling me to say, you know? And yeah, so it was good. This person was not happy with the uh, investigation results, and so in February. So this had started in May of 2015. By February, she 
sent the same allegations to our our session, which is our oh, board man. of elders. Yeah. And so then we had to have a conversation with the elders about it. The new executive presbyter who had gotten involved came to that meeting. My friend Kevin came to that meeting. The executive presbyter, the new one, he said, as far as the presbytery is concerned, this is a closed matter. Kevin said, look, I've got years worth of accountability reports if you want to see those. And so that was great. And then we, Kevin and I recused ourselves for about half an hour. We came back into the meeting and they said, Marcus, we want you to know that you have our trust as our pastor. And I was like, wow, okay. I thought to myself, maybe, praise the Lord. maybe now, yeah, praise the Lord. Maybe now it's over. They said, we're not going to, well, someone had suggested maybe they need to ask for my resignation. They said, we're not going to ask for your resignation. And in fact, we're going to brace ourselves for potential lawsuit from this staff person. And I was like, Lord, thank you. Maybe now it's finally over. And maybe it would have been, except that one of the elders, for whatever reason, believed the allegations. She started calling people in the congregation saying, Pastor Marcus is into child pornography. And when I realized that was happening, I was like, okay, well, I think it's over. <laughs> I think this is pretty much it. So we had, a, we had a congregational meeting coming up. The week prior, we had sort of a town hall where we just addressed all this stuff and talked to the congregation about it. Man, I tell you what, we, we had double our normal attendance that Sunday because ev <laughs> everyone will show up for a scandal. Marcus, did yeah. was there ever a conversation with you and this person mm. who was accusing you and the staff, this elder lady who was who called and said those things? Was there ever like a brother to sister conversation about this? I did have one conversation with the staff person and I had our human resources elder uh, joined me for that. And I just told her what I knew and she got very angry. And she said, uh, she said, I know what you did, you know, and, and she said, I'm a mandated reporter. I'm a mandated reporter. Of course, she never uh, reported to the um, child protective services, which she would have had to do had she had any evidence, but anyway. Right. And so she stormed off and that that was kind of the last uh, interaction I ever had with her. The, our, our elders decided, let's you know have our human resources serve as her supervisor from now on until we work this out. And then, and then actually, it was not long after that that she um, sent the accusation then to the elders. And then with that elder who was talking to people, uh, I never, I never did get to have a conversation with her. Yeah. Uh, did have you forgiven her? So yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> it's hard. Forgiveness is hard. Uh, but time does make it easier. It's so we had this congregational meeting and the motion was made to dissolve the church's relationship with me. The congregation approved it by a margin of two votes, you know, uh, but the fact was it was time for me to go. And what's really great is the next morning I was on a plane to Little Rock, Arkansas, because I had a pastor's retreat already scheduled for six months for that particular week. And I was like, Lord, you knew I was going to need it. And I was not the only person at that retreat who had been voted out of their congregation that day. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, um, it was anyway, it was a good place to be for me that week. Yeah. Forgiveness is hard. But I would say I would say that I I have I don't have any hard feelings uh, now. There's still a part of me that's like, if I were to hear that something bad, not like murder or anything like that, but like oh they got fired or something, you know, there's a part of me that would feel like ah they got what they got coming to them, right? Because I'm a human being, I'm not gonna <laughs> hide that. But I, but I I've 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 forgiven them. I. I don't harbor any ill will. Uh, it became clear to me that I needed to. I was listening to, I think it was Pete Scazzaro's podcast, uh, who wrote Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And he asked the question, can you pray for your enemies? And I was like, nope, <laughs> I cannot do that. And then I was like, okay, but I guess I have to. And so I said, Lord, I don't, I, I realize I don't mean it yet, but I pray that it will. So I'm like, I'm just going to say, okay, Lord, I pray for so-and-so. And, -so. and I, I prayed for the staff person. And same thing with um, the, the elder, the woman who was talking to the congregation. And, and over time, I became able to mean it, right? And so, and the other thing is, I also recognize that people don't do this in a vacuum, right? I knew that she, because she had told me uh, that she had had a really difficult, abusive relationship with her father. She left home and she was like, 18 or something. And, 
you know, something in me triggered something in her. I, I Someone told me that they overheard her say, you know, I was telling, so we would have staff meetings, one-on-one sort of staff meetings. And one day she told me about her husband's uh, pornography problem. And so someone overheard her saying, yeah, I was telling my pastor about my husband's pornography problem and he just didn't react the way I thought he would. I bet he has a problem with that too. And then it was like two or three weeks after that, that she went to the Presbyterian made the accusations. So, so something, right. So it helps me to forgive when I can remember that people do this from their own place of pain. And same thing, I think, with the the woman who was spreading these rumors about me. I think that she probably had an experience of some kind of abuse in her past. I don't know for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, anyway, it helps me to, even if I don't know exactly what's going on, there are things that that shape people, right? And staff person was shaped in such a way that she felt like she needed to do this. And the elder was shaped in such a way that she needed to do, felt like she needed to do that. And um, it just helps me to forgive when I can understand that they're doing it out of their own hurt, probably. And really, to me, one of the hardest parts of that is just saying that it was children. I mean, mm, yeah. that probably just gutted you being a father well, and yeah. thinking you I mean, we're all sinners, but there, you know, I'm sure yeah. it's a place you wouldn't go. And to think somebody at the congregation or every, right like where she sure. went from just pornography to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is one of the worst th- parts is is thinking, uh, feeling like people were believing those things about me. Right? Not everyone believed it. Right. But some of them did, and and I think and the, I think there are probably some people who probably thought, well, I don't, I don't really know. It doesn't, I imagine some thought I have a hard time believing Pastor Marcus would do that, but I don't know for sure. And so maybe we should vote him out just to be safe, you know? Right. But just having that question in people's minds, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, it's frustrating when someone thinks something about you that is not true but you can't change their mind in, in, you know, can't convince them if they, if they don't want to be convinced or if you don't have the opportunity, you know, especially people that know you or the staff that you've worked alongside. Mm-hmm. You thought, yeah. I thought it was transparent. I right. thought we y- had y- unity yes. here and everyone loved one another and that there was a st- spirit of openness. Right. I'm committed to that. Is that not being reciprocated? <laughs> yeah. And you know what? It, this experience really, affected the way I think about what matters in ministry. Because, uh, so this comes back now to that pride thing that we talked about way, way, way back, right? I was so committed to getting our church to be a bigger church. We were not a big church, about 100 people on Sunday, you know. <clears throat> and I, But I wanted to be like, a, we didn't have to be a mega church, but certainly like five or 600 people, maybe a thousand, that'd be great, you know. <clears throat> and, and, I, and I wanted us to like, I wanted us, I wanted to, other churches and pastors to look up to me and say, man, Marcus is really doing a great job there at that church. Look at what he did. You know, that would have made me feel really good. That's the same, uh, the same part of me that wanted to be a movie star. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, And then all this happened. And I was like, what a waste of effort on my part in trying to accomplish something that was meaningless. Um, Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't mean that there was no, good ministry that happened during that time there was but but what if i had spent more time on really helping people love each other and learn what it means to uh surrender to god you know and and to hold lightly all the things that we tend to cling to you know and and uh, and anyway what if what if i had really focused on deep spiritual formation and 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 maybe that would have changed things. Maybe not, but but it changed the way that I thought about what really matters in ministry. By the way, this is kind of a cool moment too. Um, after I had been voted out of the church, I was meeting with some of the elders. Uh, I just invited some of who were like friends to me. I invited them over to the house, and we were talking about everything that had happened. And and I said, and I said, you know, I mean, I thought I came. I thought this is where I was supposed to be because I was questioning my calling. Did I? Did I? Did I misunderstand God? Was I not supposed to come to this church? Because, you know, does is this an indication what happened that I made the wrong decision or, or heard, heard God wrongly? Anyway, so I was sharing these these thoughts, and one of 
one of uh, a young woman who was an elder, she started crying. I was like, whoa, are you okay? What's going on? She's like, but if you hadn't come, I wouldn't have become a Christian. I was like, oh, oh. I, okay, thank you. Yes, I understand. But And so that was really meaningful to me, right? Okay. Mm. I didn't misunderstand God. It's just that people are sinful <laughs> and terrible things happen sometimes. And, you know, I don't think that God caused this to happen to me, but God certainly works through bad things that happen to us and can use those those times to help us become healthier, more whole, which I think is is what happened to me. I think I have become healthier and more whole because of that. And one thing that's amazing, I think, is that after going through all that, I think a lot of people would have really felt gutted to just continue with that particular calling. And mm. I know you're a pastor mm. today. Well, yeah. And I didn't know if I would go back to being a pastor after that. I uh, I ended up going on staff with uh, an organization called Flourish San Diego, which I was on staff for two years. A friend of mine had started that organization maybe a year prior, and he came to me. You know, He, he was actually, uh, that week that I was away on the pastor's uh, retreat, he was my guest preacher uh, <laughs> that Sunday. And I didn't tell him because I didn't want him to go in thinking, oh my gosh, they just fired my friend Marcus. You know, I was just like, let him go, you know, just, and, but he found out there and he texted him. He's like, hey, I just heard what happened. I'm so sorry, you know. And then I met with him and he invited me on staff and, and it was, uh, I loved being on staff with that organization. We did a kind of coaching with pastors basically. And that was where I discovered a love for working with churches, plural, uh, and not just one church. I still love working with one, the one church that I'm currently pastoring, but I love, I love helping others as well. And so at the time, I didn't know if I'd ever go back to being a pastor because it felt like the thought of, of becoming a pastor felt like throwing myself into a snake pit, you know, and I'm like, why would I ever do that again? Um, so the you know the only reason I left Flourish San Diego was because I had to fundraise my own salary, which was really hard. <laughs> and so anyway, I had been guest preaching during that time at uh, lots of different churches. I was one of the churches was this one in Westmoreland, and uh, when they heard that I was leaving Flourish, they said, "Would you consider being our interim pastor?" And I said, "Yeah, let's talk about it." Um, and so we figured out. A way for it to work. And I will say that part of the reason I said yes to that was because they had been so kind and warm towards me. And I had been, you know, they were without a pastor. I was there about probably about twice a month or so. And I liked them, you know, I had grown to like them. How far away is it from the other church? Oh, two hours. So uh, yeah. Oh, two hours. Yeah. My, my old church is a 10 minutes from where I live. And this, my current church is two hours east of San Diego. So I, so I'm only out there. Uh, so it's, oh, it's a part-time wow. position. Yeah. Under normal circumstances, non-pandemic, I go. I would go out on Sunday morning, uh, and then stay overnight. Come back Monday night, and then work from home the rest of the week. Right now, we just went back to in-person services. We meet outdoors, socially distanced, masks on. So right now, I just go out on Sunday mornings, and then come home afterwards. And we we have a Bible study on Mondays, and we do it via conference call. You know, these days. Do you feel that you can one hundred percent trust your staff and your congregants? Is that the right word? So it's a small church. I'm the only staff. <laughs> it's kind of nice, actually. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so my staff really is uh, some of the elders, some of the volunteers. And I do trust them, actually. I've grown to to know them. And they know my story. I've shared it with the congregation. They know secrets as far as that goes, you know. And, um, you know, they have done some really good stuff. One of the things that... Um, I love about being there is they've got this fantastic food pantry that they started just after I started on staff there. And I did not do any of the work starting it. When I was just guest preaching, I met with some of their elders and I think it was was their elders, their session, just to, you know, bounce some ideas around with them. And I, I said, well, you know, you've got this great facility. It's small, but it's great. It's very clean. It's well, you know, well maintained. What else do you guys do besides church on Sunday mornings? And they're like, oh, yeah, um, yeah, no, I can't think of anything. <laughs> and so I was like, well, you know, what else could you do with this property that God has given you to be a blessing to the community? And so they tried a few things and eventually uh, tried a food pantry. And it has just been such a blessing to this town that struggles with a lot of food insecurity, actually. 
Um, you know, there's no grocery store in town. There's a Circle K, which is, you know, like a 7-Eleven and that's it. And so um, every week, and especially now during the pandemic, 200 people a week, family, 200 families wow. are getting uh, food every week through this food pantry in a town of about 800 families. Um, That's incredible. I love it. Yeah, it's awesome. And and see, for me, I, I in the past, I would have been embarrassed to be the pastor of such a small church. We have about, well, during the pandemic, about 25 people on Sunday, you know, 40 to 50 uh, not, uh, pre-pandemic. And mm-hmm. But I, I, I'm just... I, this is where I've been called, right? And so it's not a matter of how does it look to other people that I'm in a okay. small church. No, this is it. This is just where God's called me uh, for now, you know, however long it might be. It might be a few more years. I don't know. And I'm just grateful to to serve there. Yeah. Is there a verse, Marcus, that has meant a lot to you through all that you've been through? Two kind of come to mind. One of them, it's Christmas time, Advent right now. We're looking ahead towards Christmas. And I've been thinking about the the angels' song. You know, they said uh, they they sang glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom God's favor rests. Right, and uh, so peace to those on whom God's favor rests. And I love to think about that. On whom does God's favor rest? Um, is it uh, the Christians, or is it uh, maybe the Jews of that time? On who are they talking about? On whom does God fit God's favor rest? And then I, one day, you know, at some point in my life, I was like, it's everybody, right? On who, peace to those on whom God's favor rests. That's everybody, including me, right? God's favor rests on me. Um, and so I've been thinking about that one as we've been moving towards Christmas, right? God, God doesn't just love everybody. He likes everybody too, right? The whole, we are his children and he loves us. Then the other one is um, Jesus's baptism, right? Where Jesus comes up out of the water and hears the voice and says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, very similar, right? right? Uh, my favor rests on you. And I think that, you know, of course, God said it to Jesus, but I think God in a lot of ways says that to us too. You are my beloved child on you my favor rests. I'm, I'm God's beloved. And that's my primary identity. I'm not a pastor, uh, primarily. I'm not even a husband or a dad, primarily. I'm God's beloved. And everything else flows out of that. And then the other thing, you know, when I think about ministry now, like that's what I want people to know. I just want uh, Henry Nouwen in his book, Life of the Beloved, I'm paraphrasing here. He says something like, when you discover yourself to be God's beloved, you just want everybody else to know that they're God's beloved too, right? And and I believe that that is true of every single human being. And when a person starts to recognize that, that's transformative. Of course, I want people to know about Jesus, but if they can feel and experience that they are God's beloved, man, that changes everything. Before we seal up the envelope on this story of encouragement, I have prepared bonus material for you that we like to call the P.S. Sure to make you smile and be moved within your heart as you see a bit more of the heart and personality of our guest. Here is your P.S. Are you ready for some bonus questions? Let's do it. So on a, on a lighter note, mm-hmm. did you have any fun family traditions growing up? We did. I was thinking about Christmas again. We would always do Christmas on Christmas Eve. My mom's German. And so I guess that was more traditional in German families. So anyway, we'd do Christmas Eve and we'd go to church, you know, Christmas Eve service. Then we'd come home. Then my brother and I would have to go to our rooms or we could be in the same room, but we had to be out of the living room. And uh, my parents got everything ready. And then once we heard the music, we knew it was time we could come out and then uh, we'd walk into the living room and my parents uh, both played the recorder, you know, like the flute kind of recorder and they would be playing right. Christmas music, uh, each of them in harmony on their recorders while we came in and the whole house was just lit with candlelight, including the Christmas tree, which may not have been totally safe, but it was beautiful, <laughs> but candles on the tree, candles, you know, around the room and no other lights. And anyway, it was just very magical and, uh, loved it yeah so i also have like connections to san diego Mm -hmm. what is your favorite taco what's your favorite taco place there 
uh, there's a, a place not far from where I live here, here in town, where the town that I live in, Tierra Santa, it's called Cotijas and they just have great Mexican food. And every now and then we'll just bring a bunch of rolled tacos and regular tacos and whatever burritos, taquitos, and <laughs> just kind of bring it all and everybody eats whatever they want out of that. But that's a great place. Yeah. And it's funny. So I, I occasionally drive Lyft on the side. And I one day oh, I, nice. I gave a ride to the owner of that a very small, there's like three locations. I'm like, oh, you, like he was telling me what he does. And I'm like, oh, that's a, we eat that place. That's cool. <laughs> I dropped him off at his house and <laughs> kind of fun. Anyway. <laughs> Oh, yeah. how about that? Okay, so Uber, huh? Yeah. Or did you say Lyft? Lyft, not Uber. Come on. No, yeah, kidding. I mean, <laughs> you're, not, you're not like a, a snob or anything no. like a, not like an Uber snob. Okay. Yeah. So Marcus, was there yeah. a dream movie that you had that you wanted to do or do video for or be in? Oh, yes. If I could have, I would have directed the next Star Wars movie. That would Ooh. have been... I would have done a much better job than what they did. <laughs> I think a lot of people feel that way as well. Yeah. <laughs> have you have you gotten to use your love for for uh, movies and theater in in ministry at all? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, when I, uh, not as much recently, but for a while, I was very ambitious. You know, of course, I want lots of people to really like my church, but I would produce videos for Sunday morning services occasionally or for a special service that we would do, you know. So that was, I mean, and, that, and that's a lot of fun and I do do love it. Right now, I think the thing that fulfills that creative gene in me is the is podcasting, actually. And uh, yeah, so that's a lot of fun. Yeah. And for those out there, uh, Marcus's podcast, Spiritual Life and Leadership, just wherever you're listening to Letters from Home right now, just just search in the little bar and just click subscribe. He's got a great podcast and you'll really benefit. Uh, it's really encouraged me as far as leadership and life and things I'm involved with in church makes me think he has a great Facebook group too. Is And what's your website? Do you have a website? Yeah, uh, it's just MarcusWatson.com, uh, but it's Marcus with a K. You have to remember that. It's not it's not, not with a C, it's German. A K. Yeah, it's German. That's right. Marcus with a K, MarcusWatson.com. <laughs> And you can find my podcast there. You can find some other resources there. So, Marcus, so you're a best-selling author also beyond thingification. That's right. Beyond thingification, which has to do, well, and it also kind of came out of this experience. It has to do with, uh, do we objectify or thingify people in our churches when we're doing ministry, right? And Or when we're starting ministries or programs to reach the community, a lot of times we're just trying to get people to show up to our stuff, right? But how do we stop thingifying people and communities and actually become aware of who they are and what God is already doing among them and then just start joining God in what God is already doing? I think that's the invitation. God isn't always... God doesn't want us to try to figure out something brand new. Uh, God is already doing things and says, come on, help me out with this. This is what I want you to do. I'm already at work in this part of town or, you know, in this family or in this community or this school. Just join me here, right? And so anyway, so that's what the book is about. How do we stop just trying to get people to show up? You know, uh, what, what, what is the three Bs? Buildings, uh, bodies, buildings, and bucks or something like that, right? And that's what yeah. most churches focus on. But how do we just actually focus on what God is already doing, join God in what he's doing, and bring healing into the world? Yeah. I guess along those lines, what, what would you say is the greatest need in the church today? Mm, I would say a sense of humility and surrender. I think too often we think we have all the answers and feel like we need to tell everyone what the answers are. And we don't, <laughs> first of all. And when we act like we do, I think it turns people off. Uh, because we can see that. And when, when when other people act that way towards us, it's like, oh, you can keep your information to yourself, you know. Hmm. So I think a sense of humility, not only for the sake of our witness, but also for the sake of our own connection to God, to Jesus, right? I think sometimes we're guilty of trying to correct God. <laughs> and uh, we, need hmm. a, uh, we need to let God be God, you know, and we need to, I think, uh, you know, I heard a great, oh man, I, I think, I think uh, the church can be very judgmental and, and, and regardless of whether you're a conservative church or a more liberal church, right? 
all kinds of churches can be judgmental towards those who are not like them. A friend of mine posted something on Facebook. He was quoting maybe Walt Whitman or something like that, some you know long time ago author. But the the statement was, "Don't be judgmental. Be curious." And I was like, "Ah, hmm. that's great, right?" Because so often we just prejudge people and assume we know all about them without actually. But if someone is if you don't understand or you, or maybe is acting in a way that makes you uncomfortable, well, don't judge them. Just be curious, ask them about it, right? Try to find out what's going on in their life. And, uh, and you might be able to love them then the way God loves them too, right? I think the reason Jesus was able to love so well is because he understood everyone's story, right? When you, when you can understand someone's story, you're better able to love them. Um, and that doesn't mean they have to stay where they are, but, but you can, but they, right, transformation becomes possible when a person feels like they're loved. And we can't love someone for judging them. For curious, we might be able to learn to love them. Would you say that's one of the great passions on your heart as a pastor? Uh, yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I'm still learning to do that. I can't say I'm, I'm perfect when it comes to judge, judgmentalism, <laughs> but yeah. I'm learning, I'm growing. And I, and I want... Uh, I just want people to know, like I said before, that they're God's beloved, and I want them to treat each other like the, like every one of us is God's beloved. I mean, imagine, right? If we lived, if our if our churches, if in our churches, we all treated each other like we were, like the only thing that mattered about us was not what we've accomplished, not um, how spiritual we are, right? Not how religious or any of that, but just the fact that we're all God's beloved, right? It puts us all on the same level. And then we can, when we understand that about ourselves, we're able to love each other um, far more fully and deeply. And that, that I think would change the world. Absolutely. And I know, Marcus, you, you read a lot. What would you say is three, three books that would really help every, every Christian in ministry? So one of the books that I think is fantastic, uh, so, okay, three books, uh, Surrender to Love by David Benner, which is very short, and I love it. It's, it's just about the fact that you are loved by God, and, and how do you receive God's love? It's not by earning it. It's not by being religious, right? You can hear the theme in, in my, <laughs> the things that matter to me, right? It's just by surrendering to it. Okay. Just surrender. He's, he describes it like a lazy river, Right, the way you enjoy a lazy river is not by paddling and trying to get through it as fast as you can. It's just by laying back and letting the lazy river carry you. That's how you experience the love of God. I love that image. Oh, so, that's great. Yeah, and then the second one is uh, "Emotionally Healthy Spirituality" by Pete Scazzaro. Uh, that book was uh, transformative for me, and uh, in the sense that um, I learned so much from it, and was I able to identify with a lot of it, and and it gave me tools for becoming more emotionally healthy myself and for spiritual formation uh, talks a lot about the rule of uh, having a rule of life, which is really just a, you know, what's your structure for spiritual formation. So the third uh, book would be one that's more kind of leadership related. It's not a Christian book. It's, it's a leadership book. It's called leadership on the line and mm. it's by Ron Heifetz and Marty Linsky. And uh, they're both Harvard leadership people. Um, but really, really good. It's all about adaptive leadership. Um, yeah. And it actually fits. Like when you read it, you're like, oh, I could see how, right? These are just principles for leadership, which are good, healthy life principles for following Jesus, you know, in a way, listening to people. But anyway, um, if you're trying to adapt in some way, if and, and leadership is always some change. Mm -hmm. um, that's a great book. Uh, he says, uh, th for instance, people don't resist change. What they resist is loss, right? Mm. And so how do you recognize what it is that people feel like they're losing? Well, you listen to them, right? You, you pay attention. This is good um, discipleship stuff too, right? Um, so recognize the loss that people are experiencing. Anyway, lots of great stuff in that book on just leading in general. And all your studies, is there a, a character or person in the Bible you most admire or relate to? <laughs> uh, probably Jonah. I identify with his um, three days in the belly of the whale, um, but I also identify with his uh, running away. Um, <laughs> so, you know, for a long time I ran away from this. I think that calling to 
to be a pastor, was there for longer than I'm probably even aware of, right? But it became clear over time, and I resisted that call even when I was in seminary, right? I, I resisted that call. And then I, and then I gave into it and it was the, you know, it was, I realized it was my call, but then, you know, going through that really difficult time felt like being in the belly of the whale, right? And I get it. I can't remember. He has this prayer in there and I, I can't remember it offhand, but boy, I remember identifying with that prayer inside. And then even after he got out of the belly, like he still was a little bit stubborn with God. <laughs> it's like, why don't you blast them anyway? <laughs> you know? <laughs> You're like, hey, <laughs> <They> whoa. <deserve laughs> it. Anyway, so I, I identify with that still. I, I'm still learning and growing, but yeah, I kinda I kinda get Jonah, I think. <laughs> what what does what does being a child of God mean to you? What quality of the Lord's do you find yourself praising him for? Mm. Well, all right. It's the fact. Uh, so I would say that it's the fact that, uh, again, that I'm, I'm God's beloved, right? That's the, the most important thing that anybody needs to know about me. So what, I've got this breath prayer that I learned from, um, I think I learned it from Brennan Manning's book, Abba's Child. And it's just, Abba, I belong to you. And so... I pray that prayer multiple times every day. It just kind of comes out. It's at the point now. I've done it so much that it just sort of comes out. You know, I'm turning the corner on the street. Oh, I belong to you. You know, and it just it just kind of comes out. I and mean, sometimes if I'm wrestling with something, Abba, I belong to you, right? And it's that quality of belonging that God accepts me, that God welcomes me, that uh, God's arms are always open to me. That's the thing that I appreciate, I think, most about God. I'm God's beloved and and I belong. I trust you enjoyed Marcus's story as much as I did. Isn't it remarkable that after going through all that, the thing that he comes away with is that more than anything in life, he knows deep in his heart that he is God's beloved. And nobody wants to go through that kind of public discipline and awful situation. I am praying for us today that we look on other people with greater sense of compassion. And if we think we see something that we might get a sense that it's wrong, that we don't act on it without facts, right? Such a hard thing. And also, let's come alongside people at church who have had wrongdoing happen in their lives, or maybe they've made bad choices and they've repented and come back. So I'm praying for us all today that we keep growing in our walk of faith. As a podcast listener, do you sometimes struggle with where should I listen? Which app on my phone was I at or where was I? Struggle no more. Letters from Home Podcast has our own app in the Google Play and Apple App Store. And guess what? It's free. Just search Letters from Home Podcast in the search bar in your phone's app store and click download. How about that? Then all of our everyday extraordinary faith stories will be right there in one easy place on your phone so you don't have to go searching anymore. You can just tap the rainbow icon and encouragement is on the way. Links from our guests will be in the show notes. For more everyday extraordinary faith stories, go to our website, lettersfromhomepodcast.com and click subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're listening to. 2 Corinthians 3, 3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Until next time, go in peace. Thanks for listening. We just wanted to take a minute to let you know that just like you and your family, Purposely is also part of a family, the Krista Family of Ministries. Krista helps kids and teens learn and grow in their faith at King Schools and Miracle Ranch Camp. And Krista shares Jesus with people in the poorest, most remote places through world concern. Krista Senior Living is a community of love and care, and Krista Media is a place of hope on the radio. God is changing lives through these five ministries, and Krista is on mission to share the good news of Jesus. To learn more, visit krista.org.